Well, if you've ever built anything specifically in the realm of framing or carpentry, you'll know that there are certain codes to follow. You can't just throw things together however you want. And one area where codes are especially important is when you're building stairs. Stairs are a pretty cool invention. Aren't you glad we're not climbing ropes into the second stories of our homes or descending on poles into our basement? Stairs are a pretty cool invention, but they have to be built properly. And so in the Ontario Building Code, there are standards. And one of the most important things about stairs is they all have to be of equal height. Can't just throw a staircase together, one stair being six inches, then nine, then 12, then three. They have to be consistent. The Ontario Building Code says that they need to be no more than about 210 millimeters or about eight inches high. You can vary it a little bit, but it has to be consistent. Now, I have actually experienced the inconvenience of stairs that are not consistent. So many years ago, I was in China and I had the opportunity to visit the Great Wall of China. And on the Great Wall, there are several stone staircases. And they are not even. Some of the stairs are maybe three, four inches high. Some of them are a foot high. And you might think, well, that's no big deal. I'm not sure if anything's played more on my mind than climbing stairs that are uneven. There's many of them. And you sort of have to calculate every step. You're, you're focused on the stairs. You can't even enjoy the surroundings because you're, you're never quite sure what the height of the next stair is. And it... It's actually incredibly mentally taxing. If you've never done it, it may be hard to believe it. It's very mentally taxing to try to climb stairs that aren't consistent. Instead of becoming a, a blessing, a benefit, a useful tool, they become a stumbling block in the most literal uh, sense of the word. Well, in Acts chapter 21, verses 17 through 36, I want, I want us to think about stumbling blocks as it relates to the way we do ministry. The way we do ministry, if it's consistent, if it's principled, if it's thoughtful, if it's loving, will be a benefit to the world around us. But if we are not thoughtful and careful about the way we do ministry, ministry itself can become a stumbling block. Believe it or not, ministry itself can become an obstacle to the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like misbuilt stairs might be. So there's two lessons to extract from the text, and they are partnered with one another. The first is that Christians should both celebrate the successes of the gospel. We should look back. We should celebrate what God has done. But we also need to seek to position ourselves in the present, to live wisely, to live in such a way that we open ourselves up to even more gospel success. So we'll start with the first. And that is the call to celebrate past ministry. It's biblical, it's beneficial, it's necessary, it's informative for us to come together and to celebrate what God has done, to talk much of God's redemptive work in our own generation. Paul, you'll know, had traveled throughout Asia Minor. He makes a trip back to Jerusalem again. He'd been warned there that he would suffer and from verse 37 onward, it outlines some of the suffering uh, he would eventually experience. But right now, we're just, we're just in the first section of, of, this, um, of this passage. And we're going to read to get us going verses 17 through 20. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. So Paul is reunited with some Christian 
leaders in the church and there's an, there's an excitement, there's a joy that they finally have the opportunity to be together. On the following day, uh, Paul went in with us to James, who was a key leader in the Jerusalem church, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. Paul understood that life is not just all about looking back, but recalling and rehearsing what God has done sequentially, thoughtfully, over extended periods of time is never a waste of your time. He took a lot of time to do it. Story after story, he articulated, he laid out, he communicated what God had done through his ministry in Gentile territories. And this is the result, which, should be, which always should be the result of Christian testimonies. And when they heard it, they glorified God. You'll notice that they were glad to be together. Brothers is a reference to Christians. These weren't physical brothers. These were spiritual brothers. And when they were reunited in one another's presence, they were glad to be together. It seems to me that we should don this mindset. There is joy, brothers and sisters. There is gladness when faithful believers can come together and worship and to recall the mighty deeds of God. This should be an exciting part of our week. When we get to gather together, yes, there's excitement. When you're by yourself, with your Bible, with your pen in hand, listening to your worship music, studying your Bible, just you and the Lord. But there is also excitement when Christians can gather together, especially when they've been apart for periods of time, and enjoy one another's company. There's many benefits to being together. First of all, it helps us to overcome isolationism. It helps us to overcome loneliness. It's extremely important that we understand this about our humanity. We were designed for relationship. What is the first and only negative statement in the Bible before sin entered into the world? Adam was alone. He was alone and it was not good, the Bible says. This is before Genesis 3. This is before sin. This is before the, the fall. This is before temptation. Because God had created him as a relational being. And it all happened on the same day. So that means he felt alone even when he'd only been alone for maybe a few minutes or a few hours before Eve was taken from his side and created on the same day. Because we are relational beings. And far too often, because of past hurt, because of pain, because of past abuse, we withdraw. Maybe because of pride, we withdraw. and We think, you know, I can live out my Christian faith by myself. Jesus is enough. Jesus is sufficient. We hear Christians saying things like, I don't need to go to church. Well, be careful. Because that's a violation of multiple commandments in the word of God. Think of all the one another's of scripture. How do you practice any of them if you're isolated? How do you practice forgiveness if you're never around anybody that needs forgiving? How do you rebuke if you're never around anybody that needs to be rebuked? How do you get taught if you're never around teachers? How do you teach if you're never around others to teach? It's literally impossible to live out the fullness of the Christian life in isolation. God has called and commanded us and benefited us when we come together. You've probably observed that people that 
isolate themselves also get a little weird. They get a little weird. Because knowingly or unknowingly, we're always adjusting one another. We're adjusting our behavior. We're taking others into consideration. Oh, I said that. I shouldn't say that again. That wasn't a good reaction. We, we tuck it away in our mind for the next time. We're always adjusting one another. We're keeping each other accountable. So being together is a joy. It's also a means of denouncing discord. There's so many things I preached last Sunday. There's so many things to potentially tear us apart. None of us agree on everything. None of us. There's so many things to tear us apart, but being together helps us to find our most core areas of unity and love each other. It's also an opportunity to walk in the way of love because being in relationships, as beautiful and beneficial as they are, can also be incredibly painful. Very difficult. I don't know if you've ever seen the movie Shadowlands. It's one of my all-time favorites. It chronicles the life of C.S. Lewis, who avoided marriage for many decades because he was terrified of vulnerability. He finally met a woman over the extended period of time. They finally married. Then she gets cancer and dies. And it tears his heart out. But near the end of the, the movie, he makes this profound statement to the effect that part of the loss he was experiencing in the moment was directly tied to the love that he had experienced when she was alive. And it's a powerful truth if you think about it. To love someone is to put oneself in a position to eventually lose that love. And that's painful. But God still redeems us and blesses us through those relationships. The alternative is just pitch a tent on an island, proverbial or otherwise, and live all, on your lo- all by yourself on, uh, on your lonesome, Never, never, never be betrayed, never be hurt, never be frustrated, never have to have a conversation. But you know what the consequence of that is? Never to mature, never to truly love, never to truly understand the value of relationships. So all through the word of God, there's an emphasis on the people of God together, being with one another, preaching to one another, rebuking, correcting. This is why we should all love Christ's bride. We may not like every aspect of our ministry or our time together, but there needs to be within us an abiding, enduring love for Christ's bride. We see that reflected in the early church. There's also great value when we're together in sharing testimonials. Yeah, it's good to get together and talk about our hobbies or what's going on with our children or what the latest and greatest news in the political realm is, but sharing testimonies of God's work in our lives and in the lives of others is always a win. It's always a win. You have people over, what's God doing in your life? Let's let's tell some stories about what God is doing in our church. Hey, did you hear what God did in so-and-so's life? Because we need time to reflect upon God's work. It's not just about doing ministry, it's also about looking back and thanking God for what he's done. It's right to brag on God. It's it's right and good to brag on God. You know, we Canadians tend to be a little on the shy side, perhaps at times the the apologetic side. We don't want to talk much about ourselves, but it's always a good idea to talk much of God and to brag on what God is doing in our church, in our communities, in our family, and in our marriage. And it's a means of encouragement, not just on baptism Sundays, 
But it's always encouraging to see and hear what God is doing in and through us and more often than not, in spite of us. And then finally, we have worship, success and ministry, discussing what God has done, reminiscing about God's redemptive work should fuel our worship. Hearing good news always fuels our worship. The believers here, having heard what God had accomplished in Gentile territories, were told, glorified God. That means they ascribed him worth. So by the way, ascribing God worth doesn't mean that you take something that God doesn't currently have and you give it to him like you're doing him a favor. When we worship God, you're not doing God a favor. He's not up there feeling insecure, waiting for you to acknowledge his power. He's not up in heaven wondering if you still like him, feeling bad about himself, having self-esteem issues because you haven't worshiped for a while. We're not giving him something he doesn't already possess, but rather we are acknowledging something he does possess, his power, his glory, his grandeur, his holiness. This is what we mean when we say we ascribe worth, we ascribe glory to God. So we do all of that. We look back, we celebrate, we rejoice, we want to be together, we talk much of God's work, and then we think forward. We think to the future. And what we want to do, if we're wise, is to position ourselves for future or further or more fruitful ministry. So, just mull this question over. Do I live in such a way, am I strategic enough of a thinker to live in such a way that I deliberately position myself for ministry? Do my choices especially in the areas I have options on? Do they position me for ministry? Or is it possible the way I present myself, the way I talk, the way I live, it's actually hindering ministry to others? So here's what happens next. They're having a conversation and they, they raise an issue that they were concerned about. The Jerusalem brothers, the leaders in the church, raise an issue. They said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So there was a massive, significant number of Jewish converts that had become Christians. They're all zealous for the law. You're thinking, okay, is that, is that a typo? They're Christians. They've believed. They've come to faith in Christ, but they're still zealous for the law. I thought being part, part of the Christian faith was to boot the law to the curb. Many of us have been taught that explicitly or implicitly. When you become a Christian, you essentially take a pair of scissors and you run it between Malachi and Matthew and you separate, you unhitch yourself from the Old Testament. You sort of cast it aside. The stories are kind of cool. Yeah, we can tell Daniel Lyons then to our kids. But the law, the old covenant, eh, it's, it's moot now. It's unnecessary. Here we have a bunch of Jerusalem Jews that we're told believe, but they're still all zealous for the law. What in the world's going on? So it goes on to say, and they have been told about you, that is Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles, because keep in mind when Paul was in Corinth or Ephesus or Philippi, he was first and foremost ministering to Jews that lived in those communities, as well as the Gentiles. You are teaching them to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. 
What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. So this is the solution they come up with. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Kind of odd. But in this context, there were four Christian brothers who were also Jewish, that were participating in some sort of a vow. We're not told what kind of a vow, but it was probably a Nazarite vow. For a period of time, they had purified themselves. Part of the purification rite was to, to shave your head. I noticed that many of you are under Nazarite vows today, and I'm under a half vow, as you can see. But we don't make the connection, right? We don't connect baldness to vows, but this was part of the vow that they had they had taken and they say, hey, Paul, here's an idea so that they don't think that you've forsaken the Mosaic code. We want you to participate in the vow to bring the number from four to five. Well, of course, Paul's like, no, I'm anti-law. I can't stand the law. I'm anti-Moses. Is that what he says? No, check it out. Thus, all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. This is interesting. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them, and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. So he says, okay, I'm in. I don't want anyone to think that I have tossed the Mosaic law to the curb. I don't want anyone to think that I have no respect for what God has written in his holy books. So he, he jumps right in. And you think, ah, okay, this is an interesting scenario. Again, because if you were raised with the notion, well, that's Old Testament. You always know when someone dismisses the Old Testament when they drag the word out. That's Old Testament. That's old. We're not into the Old Testament. We're into the New Testament. So the context is Jerusalem Jews had been converted to Christ and they have been falsely taught that Paul was anti-law. We call it antinomian. Namas is the word for law. Antinomian. Specifically that he was anti-circumcision, that he was anti-customs. These people were believers, but they were still zealous for the law. How is that possible? Paul's now in town. They were concerned that they're listed as thousands. Thousands of these zealous Jewish Christians would hear that Paul was in town and react. So they ask Paul to join with a group of four men that were under some sort of a vow. The brothers suggest that Paul takes the same vow. Paul agrees to take the same vow. And then we're told that they also send a letter to the Gentile believers telling them to avoid eating meat, sacrifice to idols. And we know elsewhere that that's considered a stumbling block. We'll talk more about that momentarily. That they refrain from drinking the blood of animals and animals that have not been executed properly. 
and that they refrain from sexual immorality. And in verse 26, it's notable that Paul agrees with all of this. Okay, so now we have some questions to wrestle with. Here are four questions that should come to our minds in response to this teaching. Number one, didn't Paul teach elsewhere in the word of God that meat offered into idols is merely a matter of conscience? Why then does Paul want to bend over backwards to affirm the letter that had been sent to the Gentiles telling telling them they shouldn't eat meat offered unto idols? Number two, are we forbidden from eating blood? Are we forbidden from eating animals that were strangled instead of shot or cut or otherwise put to death? Third, isn't sexual sexual immorality a no-brainer? Like, why did the Jewish leaders take time of all the things they could have addressed? There's many sins you could commit. Why did they take time to remind the Gentile converts that they need to steer clear of sexual immorality? After all, Paul had taught them this many times, so why bother mentioning it? Number four, how do we reconcile, this is really important, a grace alone gospel that says we're not saved by obedience to the law with the apparent elevation and retainment of the Mosaic law among the Jerusalem Jews? These are some heavy questions, and they're really, really important for us to think through. So I want to begin my response by making an observation. And the observation is this, that many of us that grew up in Christian churches have been wrongly taught to think of the laws of the old covenant as being bad. Literally as things we should avoid, that they're bad. They're yucky, or at best we should steer clear of them, unless of course they're explicitly repeated in the new covenant scriptures. So we've been taught that. And sadly, to take it to an even more heinous level, To justify this view, some of us have been taught that there's almost like two gods in the Bible. Not to go so far as to teach polytheism, but the notion is, and I was taught this as a boy, I believe, that the God of the Old Testament was a God about law. He was a little bit more of a vengeful God. He was a bit more of a wrathful God. We could point your attention to the Canaanite genocides as proof of that. But then there's a new and, new and improved God of the new covenant, sort of that God 2.0. He gets an extreme makeover. And suddenly he's gracious and he's merciful and he's telling people not, you know, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn the other cheek and he's forgiving and he's kind and he's helping old ladies rescue cats from their trees and whatever else he's doing. Just a really nice, nice, nice guy. It's almost like, well, now, now because you're sort of a, two different God theory going on. This explains why there's this law that we now repudiate. It's, it's mean, it's, it's unhelpful, it's unnecessary. We just throw it all out. But we love the New Testament. Well, to answer this question, you only need to go to one chapter of the Bible. And that chapter is none other than Romans 14. Romans 14 clears all of this up. In Romans 14, Paul is clear that there is nothing, nothing at all wrong with obeying Mosaic law. There's nothing wrong with it at all. 
so long as these laws are not considered a means, this is critical, listen carefully, so long as these laws are not considered a means to make a person righteous in the eyes of God. But nevertheless, they do represent the wisdom of God. And so they each are to be considered. So let me take you to Romans 14. It will not be on the screen. I don't want to do all the heavy lifting for you. To bring your, you have to bring your Bibles to church and learn to use it a little bit. So we're going to go to Romans 14. The entire chapter is of benefit. I, w- I will read for you out loud the first uh, 12 verses. And it will explain how this all comes together. So Romans 14 says, as for the one who is weak in the faith, meaning the one that has a more sensitive conscience, the one that is a newer believer, the one that maybe comes out of idol worship, the one that used to live according to laws, thinking that that would make them righteous, whatever it might be, anyone who's a little bit sensitive or wobbly or new or amateurish in the faith, This is a message for them, and it's also a message for the strong believer. As for the one who is weak in the faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. This is a reference to those that would eat meat offered into idols and those that would not. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or fall falls and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person So he's dealing with dietary laws. Now he switches gears and he talks about festivals and observances. Even in the church today, a lot of different opinions. Do we celebrate Reformation Day? Do we celebrate Easter? Do we celebrate Christmas? People get more excited about that stuff than probably most of the really important theological issues that the church often wrestles with. And there's some strong opinions on it. Here's what God says. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. Since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. So this is, this is the linchpin in all of this. This is the, the center of the, 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 the message We're not talking about differences of opinion on Trinitarian theology. We're not talking about differences of opinion on justification by grace through faith alone. We're not talking about differences of opinion on like cardinal fundamental truths. But when it comes to dietary issues, when it comes to observance of festival days, you're going to have different opinions on these issues and everyone is ultimately going to stand before the Lord and give an account. And we need to take our brother or sister into consideration. So it's not just... Me, myself, and Jesus, it's I need to think, how does my life affect you and you and you and you? How do my choices, how do my words affect you and you and you and you? Now, you can't literally live on pins and needles and concern yourself with every microscopic concern that every person might have, might, might, uh, might have. 
But on the disputable issues, there needs to be concern for one another. And it's because we do not live to self. We live for the one who ultimately died for us. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. We are his possession. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the living and the dead. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will not all, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. And then if you read further in verses 13 through to verse 23, there is an extended discussion about dietary laws and animal sacrifices. So imagine this. When you're reading the Bible, you sort of need to transport yourself back into the original setting as best as you can understand it. And on this particular point, there's no modern equivalent. Not, not in the West that I'm aware of. So you can go, you could go today to a mosque, a church, a Hindu temple, a Buddhist temple, and you're not going to be, as you're pulling in the parking lot, witnessing temple prostitutes out front offering their services. I would just be like, what in the world? I think I made the wrong turn. But in some of the ancient Greco-Roman religions, that was part of their religious experience. It's crazy for us to think about, but that's what happened. So you maybe would show up at the Aphrodite temple and there were temple prostitutes to sleep with before you went in for worship. And then you would take your animal up and you would maybe sacrifice it. The priest would slit the throat. They'd pour out the blood. And then, of course, in order to fund the Aphrodite worship, they'd take the animals out back and they'd sell them at a discount, discounted meat. And we all know what Christians are like. We like deals, right? So early Christians, Sunday afternoon, I'd like to have a T-bone. It's uh, $11.99 a pound at Zares, and it's uh, $3.99 a pound at the Aphrodite Temple. Guess where I'm going? And so you go there, and you're bragging to your life group members about this great steak you got, the killer price, and they're like, oh, I used to worship there. I'm going to go there and get a deal too. So they go, but the problem is, they used to worship there. They used to sleep with those prostitutes. They used to worship that God and the old sights and the old sounds and the old smells and the old surroundings come back. And you become a stumbling block to them because while you have the freedom to eat the cheap steak, it's a stumbling block for them. And so Paul said, this, you have to be careful about how your decisions, it may not bother you, but it may bother the other. And so Romans and other passages like 1 Corinthians uh, help us to understand that. So when we look at Romans 14, Romans 14 does not say throw the Old Testament out. But it helps us to understand that while the law of God does not make us righteous, it is the wisdom of God. And therefore, all of the Bible is still valid for our consideration. Still valid for our consideration. Take, take vows, for example. So under the Old Testament laws, there were vow laws. Laws in place that would govern your vows. Well, Paul had already taken a vow in Acts 18. Remember that text? So just three chapters earlier, it says Paul was under a vow. So we've already seen Paul take vows in the past. 
So clearly he's not antinomian. He saw a place for, he didn't see the, the, the vows as a means of being made right before God, but he, he chose to participate in vows. Christians also at times can participate in vows. So you probably haven't heard this one preached very often, but in 1 Corinthians 7, for example, there's a suggestion there that couples can mutually decide, married couples can mutually decide for a period of time, for a limited period of time, which they must both agree on, to refrain from sexual activity with one another for the purpose of prayer. It's like you're fasting from sex. We know that there are food laws in the Bible, and there are also recommendations to fast, to refrain from eating food, to learn to control your flesh, to demonstrate your purity before the Lord. And with fasting, fasting is always linked to prayer. So these are vows of sort. Someone might say, for the next month, we're going to refrain from sexual activity. We're going to dedicate ourselves to prayer. For the next month, I'm going to refrain from eating. I'm going to dedicate myself to prayer. Christians do this. We don't say, man, that's starting to sound a lot like the Old Testament. That's starting to sound a lot like works righteousness. No, it's not. It's not about being made right before God. But there are things that position us for spiritual growth. Let's talk briefly about circumcision. So circumcision, Paul has already taught explicitly on this in the book of Acts. And he also taught Timothy this in the book, books of 1 and 2 Timothy. Circumcision is not required for those that are under the new covenant. It was a sign and seal of entrance into the new covenant for Jewish males. But it, it is not required. It's very clear. It's not required for entrance uh, into the new covenant or to be identified with the new covenant. But you remember Timothy? He chose as an adult to be circumcised so that he could have an audience with Jews for whom that was a stumbling block. Now, oftentimes when I hear Christians today talk about circumcision, they, they, they're their arguments hinge on medical reasons. There's debate back, is it, is it a good medical idea? Is it not a good medical idea? Some would even say it's, it's barbaric. It's not the kind of thing we should do. I remember talking to a friend 30 years ago in Bible college that was arguing it's essentially barbaric. I thought to myself, are you kidding me? I mean, we, we can debate its medical efficacy if you want, although I'm frankly not interested. But you're calling something barbaric that for generations and generations and generations and generations, the benevolent, holy, creative God of the universe required of the Jews? Do you understand what you're saying there? To call it barbaric is to accuse, accuse God of barbarism. So if you're, if you're reading your, your Bible, we mustn't argue for or against circumcision based upon the grounds of its so-called barbaric nature. Nor is it particularly wise or helpful for us to argue for or against based upon medical grounds, but rather, in the word of God, it's up to you. It's based on your opinion. We don't police these issues. It's not appropriate to say that someone that's uncircumcised has sinned, and it's not appropriate to say that someone who is circumcised has sinned. We literally don't talk about these issues in our church. Last time I checked, it's not in our ministry partner application. 
It should be a non-issue among God's people, a matter of personal conscience. But when you, and if you were to, for instance, require it for some sort of entrance, sign or seal into the new covenant, or if you were to foist it upon people as some sort of a necessary means for obeying God, then you would have crossed the line and be guilty of judgmentalism and sin. Now, likewise, we have this question of sexual immorality. So we have the the Jewish leaders writing to Gentile believers now, and they zero in on meat offered unto idols. They're like, you shouldn't be doing that. You need to honor uh, laws pertaining to the proper draining of blood. And you need to refrain from uh, sexual immorality. Well, let's talk about sexual immorality for a moment. Why do they... Why do they focus in on this issue? Well, it was a fact that while Jewish people sin sexually, Jewish culture did not accept sexual sin. Gentile believers, on the other hand, not only sinned sexually, but they lived in cultures that accepted sexual sin, promoted publicly sexual sin. In that respect, our community is more like Corinth than it is like Jerusalem, and that we live in a context that accepts and promotes all forms of sexual immorality. So the the most logical reason why the believers in Jerusalem write to the Gentile believers is because they knew it was an an extra special area of concern. It was an area they had to pay extra special attention to in light of their culture and, and their backgrounds. You see, many had been converted out of religions that would have practiced temple prostitution. And if you've sinned in an area in the past, it's a whole lot easier to do it in the present, isn't it? It's a little more difficult to sin in an area you've never even thought about, or you've never had any exposure to. So the, the reality is, is that we have to be more careful about temptation, especially if we've already succumbed to that temptation in the past. Plus, one of the most significant external differences between Christians and unbelievers is in the area of their sexual ethics. It's in the area of their sexual ethics. Non-Christians have a very different view about what's appropriate or inappropriate than believers do. And that's because we choose to believe that our God is not anti-pleasure, anti-sex, anti-marriage, anti-goodness, but he has put boundaries in place to protect us. The world around us who largely rejects God believes that pleasure and the pursuit of pleasure and hedonism is one of the highest values in life. And so look around us. We teach even our youngest children in public schools about things that would have made previous generations blush. Sexual perversion is rampant. It is celebrated. It is overlooked. And so it's a good reminder to us today as Christians who live in a context more like Ephesus or more like Philippi or more like Thessalonica that we are also called to a higher account, a higher standard. We don't take our cue from the world around us in the area of human sexuality. We take our cue from the word of God. And so we declare without apology that sex outside of marriage is a sin. Fornication is a sin. And we declare without apology that adultery is a sin and lust is a sin and pornography is a sin and homosexuality is a sin 
It's a sin. It doesn't change with the time, with the laws, with the culture. These things are sins. They always will be sins. They will always be damnable sins. And God will always judge the unrepentant in these areas. We cannot be shy to say this. You're not doing anyone a favor by sugarcoating it. You're not doing anyone a favor by pretending that these are no longer sins. You're setting them up to dishonor God. You're setting them up for sexually transmitted infections. You're setting up for a series of broken relationships. You're setting them up for impotence. You're setting them up to rob themselves of God's special blessings in a monogamous, heterosexual, lifelong, covenantal union called marriage. If you don't speak the truth, others are speaking lies and you're not helping anybody by just leaving it to the preacher or leaving it to the odd Christian here there to bring these things to people's mind. It's hard for us to imagine that this would be a disputable point, but it's become a disputable point in many so-called Christian churches today who have partnered with perverts to promote perversion. And so it's our job to call people to repentance. And then when they do repent, we pour on the grace. We pour on the love. We pour on the support. And we help them to find wholeness and healing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then we also have the reference here to blood sacrifices or uh, animals that have been properly drained of their blood. Now, again, this is, this is a disputable point. We don't split churches over this point either. But I think we should properly drain all blood from animals. If you invite me over, don't feed me blood sausage. I won't eat it. Don't feed me blood pudding. I won't eat it. Because I believe prior to the Old Testament law, this was a prohibition put into place. It was a prohibition um, under the Old Covenant. It's certainly commended here under the New Covenant. The reason why we properly drain the blood from animals it's very simply to demonstrate honor for the life of that animal. To demonstrate honor for the life of that animal, which is tied into our whole atonement theology. When we elevate the special nature of blood, be it human blood or animal blood, it helps us actually to appreciate better the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ that was shed for the remission of our sins. Now, those of you that are scientific might think, well, is it possible to drain every cell of blood from it? We're not getting ridiculous about this. But you do your best to drain the blood, period, and you discard it. And that demonstrates the value and the sacred nature of life. But again, there are those that would disagree on that. And you don't need to send me an email or write to me later on because you stand before God for your view. I stand before God for mine. But here's our application with regard to stumbling blocks. Perhaps one of the best applications uh, we could make is that if you are a, a newer believer, you've been saved for less than three years, you need to be extra careful to disconnect yourself from your former associations, from your former relationships, from your former lifestyle, until you've had a chance to really grow deep and mature in the Christian faith. Because those early years, those are the years when you're the most vulnerable. I've seen this time and time again. People out of the gate, strong, around the track once, year one, around the track two, year, year two, around the track a third time, and then they do a nosedive and they fall away. Year three, that's the time to watch. There's excitement at the beginning, but three years in you realize this is tough. 
This is difficult. And you need to choose to endure. So in those early years, you need to be especially careful. Who do you associate with? What relationships do you maintain that maybe need to be cooled off a little bit? What do you consume? So for example, let's talk about alcohol. The Bible does not forbid the consumption of alcohol. The Bible does forbid drunkenness. And it commends us to sober-mindedness. Now, by application of that point, anything that messes with the mind, cannabis, drugs, is out of bounds for the Christian because if its sole purpose is to alter the mind, to reduce your sobriety, you're actually opening yourself up to crazy thoughts and demonic attacks. So as much as possible, we want to retain control of our minds so we don't participate in the ingestion or smoking or toking or injection of substances that are designed to mess with our minds because this is the vehicle God has given to us. This is the tool and instrument God has given to us to take truth into our minds, which affects everything else. So there's nothing wrong with drinking alcohol. But there is something always wrong with getting a buzz, with over-drinking, with getting drunk. I've never been drunk in my life, and I never will be drunk in my life. And you should be able to say the same thing. However, let's suppose you come out of alcoholism. You've been an alcoholic. You've been a Christian for one year, two years, three years. Wisdom would suggest it's probably not a good idea for you to drink a drop. Get away from it. Cut yourself off from it. My father and my grandfather, on both my grandfathers, struggle with alcoholism. My dad has been sober now for 11 years. And in order to become sober, he just had to cut himself off. I'm done. I'm not drinking another drop. It wasn't like, well, I'm just going to reduce my consumption because he knew what would happen. He'd fall back into it. So then suppose you've been years and years and years and years into the Christian faith. Alcohol is not an issue for you. You don't mind having a beer. You don't mind having a glass of wine. And you invite a new Christian over and you never ask, hey, what, what, was, your, what was your testimony? Tell me your story. What, what was like life for you in Christ? You're, you're just thoughtless. And you offer them a drink and they think, well, this... This man or woman's more mature than me, so I guess it's okay. And all of a sudden, they're lit up again. And all of a sudden, they fall back into drunkenness again. So this is probably one of the most poignant examples in our generation. We have to be very, very careful to make sure that we don't become a stumbling block to people by offering them something that previously was an addiction or a sin issue in their life. We need to give them time to mature, and we need to give them time to develop. And one of the ways you determine that is by sharing testimonies, by asking stories, by having conversations with people. Some of you are like, I don't want to drink. I'm never going to drink. It disgusts me. It's not even a temptation for me. Okay, fine. Fine. But don't judge those that do drink. But for all people in our church, why would we not be sensitive and careful not to unnecessarily put a stumbling block in someone's path. Let's say you came out of a life of sexual immorality. You slept with your girlfriend. You slept with your boyfriend. You have multiple past flings you've had. Now you're a Christian. 
What do I do with those relationships? Do I go evangelize those people? No, let someone else evangelize them. End those relationships. Cut yourself off from temptation. Trust that the Lord will bring other people into their lives. You need to extricate yourself from associations or relationships that may cause you to fall backward and to stumble in sin. So while we, you know, we want to be gracious and we want to be loving, we also need to acknowledge our own frailty. And each of us has our unique blind spots. You all have blind spots. You all have buttons that can be pushed, triggers in your life. And you know what they are that are the ones you have to be most, the most careful about. And they're not necessarily the same as the person next to you. So be careful who you associate with, what relationships you maintain, what you drink, what you eat. If you have a problem with gluttony, it's probably not the wisest thing to apply for a job at Krispy Kreme Donuts. You need to be careful. You need to be thoughtful in your relationships. If you've had a gambling issue, it's probably not the best idea to take up a job as a dealer at the casino. Think about how your choices affect your walk with Christ and think about how your choices affect others. It's not about putting ourselves back under the law. It's about the wisdom of God being properly applied in our relationships and lives. And in all of that, we continue to preach a gospel that says we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But we're also still interested in the wisdom of God, properly taught and properly applied. So brothers and sisters, as you leave, let's, let's tell good stories. Let's talk about God's work. Let's share testimonies. Let's brag on God one after the other. Let's talk about what God has done. And let's do our best to remove any obstacles. Let's think of how our decisions, our diets, our relationships, our associations, what we drink, where we go, what we say, affect other people. And let's position ourselves as best as we can to be a good example and may God grant us much fruit as a result. 